got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. You're listening to What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Emily Yates. And I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, we're talking with Crystal Tubles, founder of Voices of the Sacred. So our mission is to create the next generation of healthy organizers by increasing the knowledge, skills, and experience of Native youth and veterans towards sovereignty, liberation, and peace. And on that note, still dreams of living free. Riding with my chains and my blood goes back to creation, to creation, to creation. Native like my blood goes back to creation, to creation. Native before America was a nation, was a nation, was a nation. Native before America was a nation, was a nation. Peveshev, Mene Wostatna Nehav. Uh, my name's Crystal Tubles. I'm Oglala Lakota, Northern Cheyenne. I reside on the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation, and I am the director of Voices of the Sacred. Hi, Crystal. Welcome to our podcast. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so this organization that you are founding is the first of its kind, and ha- or maybe not the first of its kind, but it's the first one I've heard of as far as veterans groups go. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you decided to form this organization and why it is so uh, important. Yeah, so Voices of the Sacred, I I founded back in 2015 as kind of an official group. But before that, we had already been doing youth programming for Native youth in urban areas and on the reservation. And... Basically, what happened is it evolved as we grew. It evolved as I gained more experience. So we started out doing expressive arts workshops, uh, believing that we needed to uplift the voices of those that in Native communities hold the most sacred, which is our youth. And so that's basically how the name came to be and where we started. But what happened over the years is that I am also a veteran. So I'm an eight-year Army veteran and I'm a member of About Face, Veterans Against War, and had been organizing with them. And an opportunity came for me to step away from About Face and to actually fully invest all of my time and my energy into Voices of the Sacred. And so what happened was I, I didn't feel like leaving the veteran organizing piece alone, but I was also still drawn to working with youth because I have you know over 15 years of working with young people in my community. And so I thought about it and I thought, actually, this is like the perfect merger between these two groups that complement each other. So our mission is to create the next generation of healthy organizers by increasing the knowledge, skills and experience of Native youth and veterans towards sovereignty, liberation and peace. And so when we merged them, it basically they started to complement each other because we have Native veterans, right, who have skill sets from the military that we can translate over to nonviolent direct action, that we can translate over to community organizing and to really um, politicize them and to mobilize them around issues that impact our community, whether that's climate change, climate justice, racial justice, suicide prevention, drug and alcohol addictions, whatever the issues might be. Uh, veterans have these skill sets that I feel can actually serve our community. 
Youth, on the other hand, they're in a place where they're up-and-coming generations of organizers, but oftentimes lack access to skills, um, to resources, and to the experiences to know how to address these issues that they're experiencing in our communities. And so putting the two groups together, it was just something that felt really natural. And so this is where we get the current iteration of Voices of Sacred in launching it now with the new mission and with veterans and youth working um, collaboratively and complementary. So you have been in the military and you talked about what this work is as service. And I know we're often getting thanked for our service as veterans. And a lot of us take a while to get out of the military and find ways to, we still want to be of service. And some of us have a theory that's because we weren't actually of service while we were in. So can you talk a little bit about your personal journey from being in the military to seeing the need for this organization and, and, and getting it started? Yeah, so my story is not a unique one, but it's more, you know, it's a journey. My own personal story of healing is what it really is. So I was, um, my parents are organizers. So I was kind of, in a way, born into organizing and born into uh, fighting for Indigenous sovereignty. And, you know, my father and my mother were both part of preventing Otter Creek coal mine from being developed. Uh, My grandparents were involved, people in my community. So I I was raised around the idea of, like, social justice and and doing the right thing and serving my people, you know, and, and I was also young, and I was really stubborn and knew everything, as you do when you're 17, 18 years old. And I, I got into an abusive relationship, and I was really young, and it was a really formative uh, time for me. And part of that process was to really, to get away, one, to escape. I ended up going to the University of Montana to go to college, to get away from that environment and to get away from him. And I was just in a really bad place with myself. I, you know, was heavily drinking, you know, partying a lot and just in that really crazy scene. And I was craving stability and I was craving security and I was craving discipline and structure. And it just so happened that an army recruiter was at the job fair and they got me with the line of like, serve your country. And in my mind, I heard serve my people because I had been raised to do that. And I thought, okay, this is how I do it. And they get you. They get you with those little catchphrases. And um, I enlisted. You know, at first, it, it gave me all those things that I needed, right? It gave me the security. It gave me the purpose. It gave me the discipline and the structure, those things that I had been craving. Um, you know, and it, it, it did give me a lot of skill sets too but there was there was a few moments that that started to shift my thinking with this the first was when I enlisted and and I raised my right hand and and gave the oath and I my body was so like full of anxiety that I in my mind was like how am I enlisting into this military that did so much to my people but again, I, I just pushed it to the side because I was young and this is what I had asked for. And so I continued forward. Another piece was um, I got immunizations and they gave me smallpox. 
And that was a really traumatic experience where I also had a lot of anxiety around it and my body like froze and, you know, and then you just keep going forward because that is what they condition you to do is just like put emotions to the side and you just get the mission done. You move forward. And then the last one was really when I was deployed, I I started having conversations with um, the different peoples that would come and work on on the bases and, you know, in the military, we call them TCNs. But in my mind, they were human beings that were trying to provide for their families. And I would go and I would sit with them and visit. And I started to realize that I related more to them in their stories than I did the people that I was serving next to. And that was a really huge eye-opener for me. And it, it was it was kind of at the point of I was in the middle of... of um, I had to submit an IG complaint because my one of my commanders was sexually harassing me during that time as well and um, had threatened to chapter me out of the military because of it. And so there was a lot of trauma while I was deployed as well. And in that moment, I related to the other brown people that were there. And they were the brown people that we were there as a military to oppress. And that does a lot of damage to your spirit. When I came home, I was in the reserves and... Winona LaDuke wrote a book called The Militarization of Indian Country. And she, she's friends with my family, with my mom and my dad. And, and so she came to our home and she was like, Crystal, I have a book for you. She's like, I want you to read this book. And she's like, it's a little tough on, on the military. She's like, but I think you'll like it. And I read that book. And that book mapped out the history of the way the U.S. military has impacted um, Turtle Island the land, but and, and the people, the indigenous peoples that were here first. And it, there was no going back after that. Like, I was just like, I can't pretend to not know these things anymore. And um, that was the beginning of the end of my military career. And I, and I dove deeper into organizing. I dove deeper into social justice. And, you know, there was a lot of other factors there. But ultimately, what it was, it was my reconciliation of these two identities that I carried, one being a veteran, one being a female, um, a native female. And, and basically this, this whole process and this whole journey was a healing journey of basically coming to terms with that. Like I had to make the shift over from being a soldier who just follows orders blindly oftentimes, um, and is a tool of imperialism back over to being a warrior and warriors do what is necessary to protect our people, to protect our lifeways, and to defend what we hold as sacred, and to pass down and leave something for future generations that aren't even here yet. When I started to really make that transition and realize I have these skill sets, and the military gave them to me, and sometimes they just enhanced what it was already in me, right? But basically, in my mind, I was like, some of our communities are close to like 40% veterans in Native communities. And can you imagine if we translated those skill sets over, we politicized them, and then we mobilized them around the issues that impact us, Mm -hmm. that would be a game changer. Mm -hmm. And then you couple it with youth, Native youth, who in some communities make up 60% of our population under the age of 25. That is just something that I, I've never heard of in our communities. Mm-hmm. And merging those two groups in, in mobilizing veterans in this way and youth in this way, 
it doesn't exist anywhere. Mm-hmm. And that is basically how Voices of the Sacred came to be in its current iteration. But also, it's, it's definitely a reflection of my story of healing in my process, in, in my journey with the military and getting out and, and then reclaiming my role as a warrior in my community. Mm. So much good stuff there. It's, it, it's actually the things that you're bringing up around identity conflict are really important. And I think things that most of us who, I mean, we all have a certain amount of identity conflict as human beings, I think, but when you take such extreme identities as uh, a member of the military and a member of a group that the military has been actively oppressing pretty much since its existence, there's so much to, to work through there, and I really like the distinction you make between uh, soldiering and being a warrior. The, soldier, the soldier's mission is to essentially destroy and the warrior's mission is to preserve and to uh, to protect which I think that's a, a strong distinction that's really lost in uh, in mainstream U.S. culture these days. When you're talking about TCNs uh, which is third country nationals for anyone listening who isn't aware of that term uh, what it essentially means is human people who have been brought in by the military to work in a deployment area and uh, because they're not from the U.S. and they're not from the occupied country, they're called third country nationals. And they are essentially remittance laborers who work for, you know, when I spoke with them, I think it, it was a few dollars an hour uh, and they would be under contract for a few years and not see their families um, many of them were from the Philippines. Um, I'm not sure when, when you were there if it was still mostly Filipinos. But Sri Lanka. So um, poor countries, and they are never really heard about by the American people in general. Uh, their lives are just as much at risk as anybody else's, and they get no honor and no uh, recognition and very little pay. So, yeah, it's... It's a, it's a really powerful thing to be able to take your, your military training and use it to actually serve and to better your um, community. And especially in, um, in these current times where identities are... Uh, marginalized identities are in the spotlight more and more these days as they should be uh, so that they can ideally not be marginalized anymore... But um, I would love to hear you talk more about the identity conflict um, that happens specifically and is experienced specifically by Native veterans. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a complex one. And for so long, I felt alone in that. And I I still sort of do. Um, Hence the existence of Voices of the Sacred to create myself a community Mm -hmm. too, right? But, you know, part of the identity is, like like I mentioned earlier, is, like, one, fully knowing what the U.S. military did to my peoples, right? And, and also just to state, like, really clearly is that militarism in the U.S. military was formed around indigenous resistance. It was formed very specifically to us, um, to remove us from lands, to be able to, like, build a fort in a certain location 
specifically because that's where some nations were actually uprising and resisting the most to help settlers or keep settlers safe so that way they could have free access to our lands um, or even free access to like the gold that existed in the Black Hills and in the Rockies. And so militarism was formed around us, right? And to this day, you have you know, helicopters and equipment and machinery named after us, bases named after us, right? Um, the location of all of these major bases that exist are very specific, right? It's intentional. And so knowing all of that and then enlisting because, frankly, like we're a warrior culture, you know, I'm Oglala Lakota in Northern Cheyenne, and, and we come from a long line of warriors. You know, we are the tribes that defeated Custer in the 7th Cavalry um, at Battle of Little Bighorn. And so I think in some ways, the way the U.S., you know, colonized these lands and then put us under reservations and then stripped our men and our women of our roles and our responsibilities within our, within our communities and our, and our families... You know, our men weren't allowed to go out and hunt. They weren't allowed to go out and to keep us safe and to defend us. And so when that time came where the U.S. military started to offer an opportunity to become a warrior, they knew what they were doing. It was an intentional thing. They took advantage of the fact that we are a warrior culture. And they took those roles away from us. And then they turned around and gave us the opportunity to fill that warrior role within the U.S. military. And, and it was, it was to a point, right? Like it was, it was for imperialism. It was so that the template that they used to colonize us on these lands and to colonize these lands could then be taken by the U.S. and, and put and placed on other um, indigenous communities to get access to their lands and access to their resources, most specifically oil, and, and that's imperialism. And the U.S. military is the enforcer of imperialism. And it's important to know if, you know, if folks are trying to have an understanding of this country and the history and of imperialism and how we are in this current state that we're in right now, right, with, with the protests, then it's important to take it all the way back to pre-colonization and to understand that there were peoples on these lands first and that we were colonized by the U.S. and as and enforced by the U.S. military, right? Like our colonization was enforced by the U.S. military. And I hold both of those identities in me, you know, and then you, you layer that with being a female in, in the patriarchy that exists within the U.S. military and the patriarchy that was introduced with colonization, you know? So it, it definitely is is a really complicated identity, but I, I can't change that. There, like, there's, I can't go back and change my decisions. I can't go back, and I, I really believe that, like, I don't think everything happens for a reason. I think that's, like, a way of, like, erasing people's experiences, but I do think we can find purpose in our experiences. My dad always says that, like, what are you supposed to learn from this situation, from this, this tough time, right? And so for me, I had to go there. I had to go there and I, I gained these skills, I gained this experience, and now I can take it back and I can actually use it in my community and I can help mentor and guide youth into organizers and I can guide other veterans into this place of being able to use their skill sets as well to serve our community um, and to truly serve 
in a way that is actual of service to the people, not to an empire. And yeah, and so I think that the identity piece is, it's been a long process, but I think I'm in a lot better place now with it, that I have an outlet to be able to do this work and use it in a way that is meaningful and that is going to create change. Yeah, it seems like you're really doing that in some some potentially and historically really effective ways. Storytelling is a huge service to communities, to, to human beings. That's how we passed on our knowledge for, you know, all the years before writing was invented and recording. So the fact that you have the option to record your stories as well is, uh, and the youth stories is, um, I think, an amazing use of your skill set. And especially, you know, when you talk about, you know, you're, a lot of people, when they talk about the way things are now, as far as we, with the current presidency and the just outrage after outrage after outrage of what it specifically is doing, they tend to frame it as like, what has happened to this country? What has it become? And um, most of them don't have the perspective that you have of, well, this is how it's always been, and why would it be any different? And the idea of viewing it all through the lens of imperialism is something that a lot of people don't, don't quite get to. When we're talking about imperialism, we're trying to make as many connections at least for me, I'm trying to make as many connections as I can between one struggle and another struggle and another struggle and not see them all as happening in a vacuum. And I would love to hear some of your thoughts on how the work you're doing is connected to the uh, movement for Black Lives, for example, and to the current economic situation we see in this country with so many people basically just being left to suffer and struggle in the midst of the pandemic. And, um, you know, I know that's a lot, but what I'm getting at is the larger connection. So maybe you can speak to that. Yeah, I, I will try. <laughs> I think there's, there's a lot of intersections and there's a lot of parallels, right? So I think it's important for people to understand that like one, yes, this country was founded on genocide. And, and it was founded on the removal of indigenous peoples and the colonization of indigenous peoples in disconnecting people from the land, specifically. And it's important to understand that because it was like a domino effect, right? Because the way I view it is like indigenous sovereignty, so what happened to indigenous peoples in black liberation and what happened to black people being kidnapped from their own country and their own lands removed from their lands and brought here to build this country right with free labor those are two sides of the same coin you know a comrade uh, this past weekend in Tulsa said that like that's two sides of the same coin that uplift and uphold white supremacy and so it's under it's it's important for people to understand that like that is the foundation of this country and until we address that foundation and we we destroy that foundation and rebuild a new foundation that is built from a place of love and, and unity and diversity and, and liberation and freedom and sovereignty for all peoples in relationship to each other, right? 
then we, it doesn't matter the work that we do until we address that foundation, you know? And I, I think that it goes the same for all of these different issues that we're encountering. You know, you look at like corporatism, right? So like, why are we at war? We are at war for oil to get access. I mean, and you can go through different spaces, not even just oil, but to get access to resources from other communities and indigenous communities specifically, right? Central America, South America, the Middle East, everywhere we go with the U.S. military, we are not there because we want to introduce democracy and freedom and whatever other lies and propaganda is being pushed on us. We are there specifically because those are the corporate interests of some of the largest corporations on this earth and the wealthiest people on this earth. And so those are the same people that pay and, and give money to our politicians. Our politicians are the ones that determine whether or not we go to war. And so it's just like, it's, it's this whole cycle. Uh, Palestine, the template that was used on us, the US, U.S. being built over the top of native people's villages and homelands, the same exact thing going on where Israel is now building their country over the top of Palestinian lands in villages and homes. And so it's the same thing. It's the same template. And who is the biggest supporter of Israel? The U.S. Who provides the most aid, the most military aid? The U.S. Hawaii. Hawaii is an occupied land. They are their own kingdom. The kingdom of Hawaii existed before, and then they were invaded for corporate interest because people wanted access to the rich and fertile land and Pearl Harbor, the largest, I think it's the largest natural bay where like they can build a, a port. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted access to that because that is a strategic location for our military to be placed. And that was all corporate interest. Mm -hmm. You look at the movement for black lives right now, like I mentioned earlier, indigenous sovereignty, black liberation, like those are the same things. They're both the two pillars that uphold white supremacy. And so our movements have to be connected. We have to be transnational. We have to be global struggles, and we have to understand how that impacts all of us, not just the communities that are being invaded and colonized. It impacts everybody because while all of our money is being spent on our U.S. military budget for us to be in these other places and to occupy these other lands for corporate interest, guess who is suffering? Guess where money does not go? It does not go into our public education system. It does not go into our healthcare system. It does not go into the resources that our communities desperately need. Therefore, everybody suffers at the hands of corporatism, at the hands of capitalism, at the hands of militarism, imperialism. And so that's, we can say that there's intersections and we can say that these are parallels, but in my mind, the reality is we are all fighting the same fight. I love that you said you would try to talk to that, and then you just dropped truth after truth after truth after truth, all perfectly connected. Like, I, I think it, it actually, it speaks a lot to the fact that you, you live these realities and uh, eat, sleep, and breathe them, and a lot of people don't. And that, I think, the things, that, the connections that you're making are connections that a lot of people are afraid to make, that a lot of people don't want to acknowledge we benefit from and uh, I think when we're talking about being anti-racist you know that's going around a lot lately like if you're not racist you should be anti-racist these are the conversations that I mean I think it's amazing to see them happening in the mainstream now but when we talk about being anti-racist 
we actually, it means we have to be anti-imperialist and we have to be anti-corporatist because these are the structures that create racism. There wouldn't be uh, racism against indigenous people and black people if there hadn't been a need to make you villains or make you worthy of destruction or non-people. It's actually a lot more complicated to be anti-racist than to just be like, I love all people regardless of their race. And when you're making all these connections, the thing it says to me is that there are actually infinite ways to be anti-racist and all of them involve being anti-imperialist and anti-corporatist and anti-capitalist, no matter how scary that sounds because it's different. But at the same time, to me, I feel like it's, it's actually scarier to see things go continually the way they have been. And I just think you connected everything so <laughs> fucking beautifully. <laughs> like, I don't even, I'm not going to add to that. Like, that's just going to be enshrined in stone. <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to also keep in mind that, like, these communities, we're not marginalized communities. We're targeted communities. Mm. And I think it's really important to be, and, you know, and I catch myself because, like, English is, like, a foreign language to this land, <laughs> right? And, and it's easy to manipulate, mm-hmm. right? But it's important also to understand how we are describing these things, right? And so, like, yeah, we're not marginalized. We're targeted. Mm-hmm. And we are targeted for all of the reasons that I just listed out and that you just named as far as, like, racism and white supremacy. Something I, I want to focus on is, is you were kind of talking about uh, values and, and living these values, and, um, you know, and it, it's a Hawaiian brother of mine that actually, like, teaches me all the time. And he told me, like, we have to be principled in this work. And so I refuse to allow my oppressors the power to change the way I react and respond and move in this world. I will respond based on the way I was taught, the way I was raised in accordance with my traditional values in this life way and in relationship to this land. That is how I will move on this earth. Um, and it will not be dictated by my oppressors and by corporatism and capitalism and, and all the other isms, right? I will not let them change my behavior. I have to be principled in that, right? And I have to live those values. And so when I say that, like, yeah, we can talk about intersections and in, in how these struggles parallel, but the reality is, is like, no, your struggle is my struggle. When I win, that is your win. And, and we have to look at each other like that. We have to look at each other like relatives or we don't win this alone. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for at the risk of using too much military lingo, mm-hmm. um, you know, like you don't win this war by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Indigenous sovereignty movements alone will not win this war. Black liberation movements alone will not win this war. Palestinian movements will not win. We have to do it together. Mm-hmm. It has to be a global movement that is unified and ready to move forward that honors and respects the relationship that we all have to each other and to Mother Earth. And I think it's important for us to name that like, we have what we need in our own communities. We know what we need to be doing. We know that the resources and the skills and the experience exists. It's just a matter of bringing it together. It's a, it's a matter of like fine-tuning it and then connecting with other peoples, right? All of that is what I envision Voices of the Sacred doing. We will make your struggle our struggle. 
We will show up for you when you call. And when we win something, that win will also be shared with you. And that is the way, those are like principles that I'm trying to carry in my life. And I want to hand those down. And I want to be able to share and convey that way of operating. That we don't work just with allies and comrades and, and partners, but we work with relatives. Mm-hmm and people that we build that relationship with, right? It's important how we describe these things to ourselves, and it's important for us to be principled in that work and to identify what our principles really are. But yeah, I just wanted to add that piece. Yeah, well, and that's a really important piece because I think a lot of the grumbling I've heard about whether it's Indigenous sovereignty or the movement for Black Lives or all of these struggles that are the same struggle is that they are somehow going to leave behind everyone who isn't in one of those groups. You know, like poor white people are like, but what about the poor white people? And I think it's really important, the thing that you touched on, which is that this work lifts everyone. Mm -hmm. And without it, nobody can be lifted. Mm -hmm. It's all or nothing. And unlike imperialism, this work doesn't improve some people's lives at the expense of others. Exploitation is not part of liberation at all. And unfortunately, I think there has been a lot of the divisive rhetoric that's come down from authority figure after authority figure that creates divisions between all of our different identities and pits us against one another. And we, when we're doing this work, that this is to to lift everyone and not to push anyone down. And if anyone's being pushed down, that's not part of it. That's, that's the thing that needs to be dealt with, but that's not part of it. And uh, so you beautifully segued into talking about the... the the way you want Voices of the Sacred to do that and hold its principles and its values. And if you could elaborate a little bit more on what those principles and values you're building on specifically are, I would love to hear more about that. Yeah, so I think what you said is is spot on as far as like this work uplifts everyone. You know, when I was at Standing Rock, I, I would often say like, we are fighting for clean water for everybody, not just the native people that live right here, Mm -hmm. but everyone downriver, Mm -hmm. right? Like this will impact everyone. And so, you know, something I used to always say is like, if you need and drink this water to live and you need air to breathe to live and you live on this land, then this is your fight. It's just very, very simple, basic human needs that, we are fighting for. And we are fighting for it not just for our own benefit, but for everybody to have access to that. So I think that when you named that, that's kind of what it made me think about. And as far as like Voices of the Sacred's principles, a lot of them reflect my own personal principles, obviously, because like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to spearhead this and move. But you know, there's just some things that like visioning, right? Like I think having a vision for, for the world that we are trying to create and that we are so desperately fighting for is very important. We have to be able to imagine what it can look like. And then, beyond the visioning, we have to be able to, yes, fight and resist, 
but we actually have to be able to create and develop these systems that we want to replace the current ones. We have to be able to do that. Otherwise, what are we working so hard towards? We're just spinning our wheels and doing stuff to do stuff if we don't have an actual end goal in sight. So I think visioning is really important, balancing ourselves between resistance and fighting and creating and developing that creative part of, of who we are as humans and nurturing that. And uh, like I said, like one of the values is like we aim to work with relatives and to develop those relationships in real ways, not in a way of like, I'm just an ally to this. I'm just kind of like a, you know, I'm just connected to it, but in a way that like, this very much is my fight too. And I think, you know, part of our work with voices too in a principle is like raising people into this, right? So like raising our next generation into the space of healthy organizing practices. So like one of our, we have four pillars of work that we're working on, which the first one is like our Youth and Veteran Organizing Institute, which is going to house all of our political education, our skills building, training, things like that. And then our second pillar is the economic development piece where we hope to have a coffee shop that will serve as more of a community hub and a space to actually organize from, a space to build community in and have a good cup of coffee and do some internships and some job training skills for veterans and youth in our community. And then the third one is collective wellness. And, you know, collective wellness is is one of our pillars and it's also one of our principles because... We have to teach this younger generation of organizers and just new generation organizers in general that we are in this fight for the long haul. It took generations to just fuck shit up the way it is, and it is going to take generations for us to get out of this. And, And I may not even be alive to see the fruits of my labor. And I have to accept that, and I have to be okay with that as an organizer, as someone who is in this fight. And because of that, I have to know how to pace myself and to take care of myself and to teach and to role model the young people that we are bringing into this how to do the same. Because I was taught horrible, horrible practices of like waking up, drinking like two, three cups of coffee, going to work and then being so immersed in work that like I look up and it's two, three in the afternoon and I haven't eaten yet. And the toll that takes on our body is a lot and we don't realize it when you're doing it every single day because the work is always urgent but the reality is this work isn't going anywhere this fight is not going anywhere we are in it and and it's okay to love ourselves through it it's okay to take a break it's okay to take care of ourselves through this and that is what I want our younger generations and new organizers to understand is that like we have to do this collectively and we have to be well collectively and our final pillar of work is our campaign work So on top of these foundations of skill building, being politicized, you know, and having a community to organize from and and being healthy and well, we will then engage in experiential learning and we will dive into campaign work. We will show up for our relatives the way that we would like our relatives to show up for us. And those are our four pillars of work that Voices of Sacred will be holding. And like I said, some of them cross over into being principles as well in the way that we want to show up with our relatives, in the way that we want to show up in our community. I think that's all such important stuff. And the fact that you're, you frame them as pillars, you know, we've talked about this before, but it really speaks to the fact that each pillar is equally important because they all do their unique role in holding up the house. Especially the piece about community or collective wellness 
as opposed to the idea of solely focusing on individual self-care. It's a huge piece that I've, I've been thinking a lot about recently. First of all, we don't think of caring for our, our well-being, our bodies and minds as being just as important as every other aspect of the work often enough. So the fact that you're elevating that is, I think, crucial and very wise. And also, we tend to put this pressure on individuals to heal before they're able to come into an organizing space. And I think what your work is doing is going to bring the emphasis where I think it should be, which is on the community to create this space and ability for caring for each other. And I don't even want to say just healing for each other, because healing as a process requires wounding to stop and in the communities like you like you said it perfectly these are targeted communities Mm -hmm. constantly under attack Mm -hmm. if you're constantly under attack how can you heal Mm -hmm. you have to first create a space where you can be protected and that's not a space that one person can create and when we put the emphasis on one person to heal themselves we're kind of ignoring how they got wounded in the first place and that the fact that they're wounding is not unique to them, but it's actually wounding that's being inflicted on the whole community. It's a piece that ties into all the other pieces. You can't do campaign work without being in a space of safety and wellness in a sustainable way. Maybe you can do it immediately. You can jump into an action and be a total mess, Mm -hmm. but you can't keep doing that for the long run, which is you, again, put perfectly it is it's a generational project it's a multi-lifelong project Mm -hmm. (laughs) and many of us are not going to see the fruits of those labors so if we're if we're not taking care of ourselves in our communities while we're doing the work then we're missing out on the piece of the work that we could actually be benefiting from (laughs) and seeing in our lifetimes and as a runner you know all about the importance of uh of taking care of yourself for the long, the long run, <laughs> and also about the harm that can be caused by not doing that. So before we um, wrap up the conversation, I don't know if you have any suggestions or ideas on how non-Native folks can contribute or help with Voices of the Sacred and also other veterans or non-veterans. Like I know that's like three very specific groups, but I would love to hear more about how people can contribute and be tied in to your work. Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity to share that. And it's really funny because, like, sometimes when you do the work, you're so immersed in, like, getting this done that, like, for someone to ask me how others can contribute, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is really nice. Let me think about it because I haven't thought about it yet. Um, You know, and, yeah, so I I just, I want to add one thing before I move into, like, the ways people can contribute. It's, like, Mm -hmm. purpose and healing, right? Mm. So, like, when we have purpose, it helps us heal. And that is often in a collective space because we are communal beings, right? Like we, we were oriented to be, you know, in family spaces, in community spaces. And, you know, and so the other part of that is like when we're healing, we often tend to find our purpose, right? And so it's like this feedback loop that you and I have had conversations about. And I think, you know, that is kind of at the heart of what I'm doing. For me... 
I'm finding my purpose, but it's also going hand in hand with like healing, right? Mm-hmm. From from trauma, from systemic racism in, in the military and all the things, right? But also on the other side of it, as I'm healing, I'm able to then become more and more engaged in my purpose. And I, I want that for everyone. And and that's that's really at the heart of it. And so I think that when it comes to supporting this work, like that's what you'll be supporting. Mm-hmm. And I I think you know, right now, Voices of the Sacred is so new. So getting our voice out there and like sharing this podcast and, and sharing our website and our links to the things that we have, like following us on social media are always good ways to support, um, obviously, financial things because like, you know, the system doesn't want to financially support us. <laughs> they don't want us to tear it down. Um, so I think like <laughs> shifting resources is a big thing, right? Is if you have access to resources, um, you know, support us, help us do some of our programming, help us get some of this stuff done, get us up off the ground. You know, if you have land that you want to spare and you want to tax right off, <laughs> gift us your land. <laughs> land back 2020. <laughs> Reparations. Um, Come on yeah, now. Yeah. And so there's that. You know, uh, some of the programming that we're currently working on, we're on so many different campaigns right now. Currently, we're working with Racial Justice Has No Borders on a campaign to repeal the authorization for the use of military force, which is is the mechanism, the, the legislative mechanism that allows us to go to war so easily. And that's what allowed us to be at war for so long, right? We're organizing around the Keystone Pipeline, so we're always, always fighting pipelines missing and murdered indigenous women. We're aligning with Movement for Black Lives and what they're asking for and their demands. Uh, obviously, demilitarization. We're getting ready to launch a, a webinar, an online webinar series of discussions with Native veterans called Reclaiming the Warrior Spirit. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be launching. We're working on a podcast of Northern Cheyenne veteran warriors telling their stories. That'll be coming out we have online webinar trainings for our youth to become politicized and have access to Palestinians and Hawaiians and Black liberation organizers to share their stories so my youth have that foundation and will carry that forward with them as they do the work. So we have a lot of stuff going on right now. <laughs> many, yeah. many different things happening. You know, we're working on, on our running projects. We want to do a, a marathon sometime soon to promote and encourage a healing space and a collective wellness space for ourselves and the coffee shop, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I think supporting us economically would be a big help right now for us to get a coffee shop up off the ground and to have a space for Native veterans and Native youth to go and to just be and to create community and wellness and have access to, like, political frameworks Mm -hmm. and to create a decolonial framework that we can work from. So... There's so many things, so many ways, but, you know, those are some of the few ways to be able to support at this moment until we're a little bit more established and off the ground. And we'll make sure to put your PayPal links and everything in the show notes. So it sounds like a lot of the work that you're doing in demilitarizing is actually rehumanizing, which is really awesome and exciting. And I think it speaks to the healing process and the work being a self-perpetuating cycle and the fact that if that if we're looking at the ways that we're seeing this nation moving as um, more and more divided and more and more exploitive um, and more and more aggressive and geared toward violence, 
the more important work like this that is reminding us of our, our personhood, first of all, and reminding those of us who aren't indigenous of the fact that this country was built on genocide. And I think there's a lot of uh, romanticism around um, indigenous culture and this idea that it, it was it was a thing and it no longer is. And uh, the work you're doing to bring current human beings' stories and remind those of us who don't hear those targeted voices that often that they exist and that they're being constantly silenced. And so, you know, I know Sarah wasn't able to be here on this interview, but one of the goals that she and I both share for this podcast is to amplify voices that are regularly silenced. So, yeah, I hope everyone listens to the Voices of the Sacred podcast when that's up and running and checks out the website, which is voicesofthesacred.org. And we'll put all the social media links and everything. Is there anything else you wanted to say or speak to? No, I mean, I think, yeah, maybe I'll expand upon, you mentioned um, rehumanizing ourselves. And I, I think that's that's really important in every movement space right now. It is that, you know, one of the reasons why I organize, it's, it's not to, like, access power or to, like, you know, fight for power or any of that. It's... It's literally, you know, in my belief, uh, the way that I'm taught is that we are spirit beings having a human experience. Mm. And, and part of why I organize is to basically realign myself, my human self with my spirit self. And, and that is always in relationship to the land and my connection to the land. And, and I think it's important, you know, that may not be everyone's journey, but I think what is important is the humanity part of it in like rehumanizing ourselves and remembering why we do this work. It's not a job. It's not to access power. It's not to get paid for. Although, yes, some do get paid and that's awesome. I'm not <laughs> not knocking that. <laughs> We've got to survive. <laughs> in an ideal world, this would be yeah. the highest paid work. Yeah. Yeah, in access to power, yes. That is a way that we're going to move forward and and shift some things, right? But ultimately at the root of why I do this work is is to realign myself that way Mm. right and then also just expand upon like the colonial process right it's very specific about erasing history and erasing people's voices silencing people's voices and just ignoring people's voices and native peoples even in movement spaces are oftentimes erased and romanticized right and tokenized and I think that, yeah, we all just have to take responsibility and, and do the work to shift that and to, to really think about if we are working in these spaces, then we need to make sure that these voices are present. And so I definitely appreciate the opportunity to be able to share my voice here. And I, you know, I obviously don't speak for all Native peoples. I, I speak for me and, and my family and, and obviously represent my community. But there's so many stories out there, mm-hmm. so many Native voices, and I encourage folks to find more of those voices, you know, and appreciate the time that I've had to share my voice on this podcast. Mm, and I really appreciate the time you've taken to share everything. These conversations, I feel like we could have them for hours and hours and hours, and I hope that we all are. And that, you know, something for me I've had to learn to do a lot is listen. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to listen to everything you're learning and giving. I think we'll have we'll have a chance to have you back on soon and and hear more about everything you're doing so thank you cool thank you 
So here we go. Take two. Um, <laughs> take two. So yeah, the this is the first installment of Road Glitches. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm currently nomading, and I am I have a home office which is on wheels because it is my car, and uh, so I've got this whole elaborate setup where I have my microphone and my computer on my dashboard and unfortunately sometimes the battery dies and it doesn't give me a warning so we just had a really fabulous conversation it was fabulous we had a really interesting and like insight rich conversation <laughs> and you'll never get that, to uh, hear it womp womp. it's lost it's lost <laughs> to the to the ether to the gods of the internet that decided we should rethink what we had said and have a different conversation, apparently. <laughs> um, I appreciate your dedication mm. to the uh, What the Folk lifestyle brand that you are <laughs> recording on the, uh, on the road currently in Butte, Montana. So, well, well, I am in my closet in Lyons, Colorado. Not a euphemism, literally in my closet. I think I well, am way out of many closets at this point in my life, so... Yeah, I like to think so. I like to think there's more closets yet undiscovered that I get to emerge from. Yeah. You know, as life goes on. The undiscovered <laughs> closet. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, I didn't even realize that was a thing about myself I was repressing yeah. until I was given the option to stop repressing it. Yeah. Publicly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every woman needs a closet of one's own. So. <laughs> My car is my closet, essentially. A car of one's own. So, so yeah, what what the folk did you learn when you got to listen to this interview with Crystal in which she just generated all this dang wisdom? Uh, that was an amazing interview. I'm so stoked you got that. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to um, remotely join you, but I had aunt duties with my niece and we had to make a very secret hideout. And it was very important. Yeah, she said so much that I don't even know if I know where totally where to begin. I really loved the conversation you guys had about anti-racism work and sort of connecting it to these bigger structures. Mm. I think as this conversation about racial justice, which will hopefully stay in the spotlight this time and not just get pushed to the side like it always seems to right. do. Um, it's interesting seeing all the different angles people are coming out of it, um, at it from. And, you know, I think all of them are well I mean, at least the ones that are trying to, you know, work for the sake of equity or well-meaning. But it's interesting seeing things like, OK, we're going to have people not do voices on The Simpsons and things like that as a response. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, there's part of me that's like, well, OK, I guess that's, you know, great from a representational level, maybe. But um, mm -hmm. as much as I love The Simpsons, you know, I'm like, OK, I can let go of Hank Azaria doing the voices for everybody. Um, but right. also, it, does that actually build equity? Does that actually get into the uncomfortable conversation right. of, you know, all of these sort of rich capitalist celebrities wanting to make good on the culture they made? Are they actually willing to make the sort of sacrifices to make a more equitable society? Or is this just a way to make them feel better about it? You know, so exactly. That's been kind of on my mind today. So I appreciated that y'all framed that conversation about what anti-racism work means in a sort of bigger context and acknowledge that that's a tougher thing for people to wrestle with. But 
I think it's, I agree that's really necessary if we actually want to move towards a space of equity that benefits everybody. Crystal said so well, we don't win alone, like this work lifts all of us. So yeah, talking about what that means. I really appreciated that for sure. I really appreciated the way she articulated um, all of the connections between all of the struggles and actually all beings um, Mm -hmm. as being one struggle. She has a very uh, clear way of describing that and the way that that we do a lot of performative uh, quote-unquote anti-racial work that's really just look at me and how anti-racist I am mm-hmm. and doesn't address the systemic issues. It's kind of like how frustrated I get when people talk about like we just need to get rid of Trump and then everything can get better. I'm like... Well, that's like changing the voices on The Simpsons. Like, you're basically just putting a different voice on the same, um, the same intentionally divisive and oppressive machine. You know, Obama sounded a lot better talking about um, torture than Bush <laughs> did. Right. You know? Obama's like, oh, yeah, we tortured some folks. And it's like, it was so, everyone's just sort of like, okay. I guess he did. Yeah. And it's just a different voice. And, and when Trump is just like, is, says the things he says, he's, uh, he's just being a lot more honest. He's saying the qu- uh, quiet part loud. <laughs> exactly. And he's, yeah. he is putting, shining a spotlight on the fact that this system is intentionally the way it is. And a lot of people are really failing to you know and not necessarily by any fault of their own but they're just not looking past his obvious offensiveness and his obvious atrocities that he's committed against humanity and they're they're not seeing the way that this is the status quo yeah they're like think he single-handedly did these things or they want to believe that Russia put him up to it, you know, or like whatever fairy tale people want to believe that helps them sleep at night when it's like, I guess that's easier than just accepting the fact that we have a country that is ahistorical where we don't reckon with our history, which is something else Crystal mm-hmm. talked about so well. You know, the fact that this country was founded on genocide. And even if though we've gotten better about acknowledging that, I th- like as opposed to in the past where I think we didn't discuss it at all. You know, now you go to, like, I when I was in St. Louis for the DPA conference, I went to the, like, Frontier Museum under the arch, and I was like, oh, God, this is going to be a lot of, you know, old dead white men. But, mm-hmm. but they actually did discuss, you know, the, the Native cultures that lived there before and did discuss removal and things like that. So there is, from at least my perspective as a white person, I've seen a conversation that at least acknowledges that, but it still doesn't really center it in the way that it should be centered as like, this was what our country was founded on. And what does that mean? Just the, like the way our country was built by slave labor, what does that mean? And what does that mean for us all in like the karma of our ancestors and how we deal with this ancestral trauma that we've never really Mm -hmm. reckoned with and that we've all kind of been born into. So we all need to work on it together. Um, And yeah, I mean, I'd never pretend to have easy answers there, but I think it's hopefully more people are starting to ask those questions. And I really appreciated how Crystal framed 
the importance of having that sense of history. It's really hard to reckon with the guilt that comes from learning about imperialism and my again, civilian perspective, I still feel this tremendous amount of shame that my tax dollars go to this, that I turn a blind eye to it and that I sometimes get frustrated. I can't make other people care about it. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know why I just have the defect that I can't not care about once I started learning about (laughs) the history of imperialism. I know. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, it's weird that that's, you feel defective being the person that brings this up all the time, you know? People hate, don't hate want to, to break hear it, it to you, but yeah, and so it's it can be really alienating. But I mean, that's being a little alienated is nothing compared to what people in targeted communities, not just in this country but around the globe, have dealt with thanks to our government. Yeah. So yeah, how we but the thing is like reckoning with that history and actually instead of just trying to pretend like everything is okay and that this is just how America is, if you aren't for our team and this version of America and make America great again, like it was ever all that great for anyone. <laughs> well, I guess it was great for some people, but um, I guess that's easier in a way, in a cognitively lazy way, I guess, but also probably emotionally yeah. and psychologically easier than trying to be like, you know what? We all own this horrific history. What are we going to mm-hmm. do about it? And by working with that and moving through it together, it really would lift everybody. It's a win-win. Yeah. We you know? can't break a cycle of oppression and violence if we don't acknowledge that we're in one and that it's mm-hmm. in us. Because we're yeah. all connected to each other and our collective human history. Mm-hmm. We're all connected to human patterns, the human condition, we all have conflict, we all have ups and downs and disruptions. We can't turn a blind eye to the fact that maybe it maybe isn't even our personal ancestors, but people who look like us or looked like us, you know, created a system where people who don't look the same way are targeted and oppressed and fucked with and exploited. And all we can do, any of us, with, uh, you know, I, we can register the guilt and the shame, but then it's really actually not hard to turn it into action. Um, yeah. There are so many even small actions that we can take, even just acknowledging, like, okay, this is in me, and I'm not going to get butthurt about it, or, like, mm-hmm. go try and prove to anybody that I'm not one of the bad ones. Like, you know what? Sometimes we are. We're all one of the bad ones sometimes, and Mm -hmm. sometimes we're one of the good ones, but, like, we all have both of those realities and polarities in us, and we're all experiencing either the generational trauma of being oppressors or of being oppressed, because there isn't really a whole lot of middle. Yeah. So, yeah, like you said, taking it personally doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, We're just humaning. Yeah, and we can't, we can't, we can't stop allowing ourselves to be people. All we can do is really get more aware of what that actually means, mm-hmm. and uh, and how we're gonna acknowledge our undeniable interconnectedness. And like that interconnectedness does come with pain. So there, you know, because when you're forced to actually look at the suffering in the world around you and feel the connection. Ram Dass is always one of my go-to spiritual teachers. He had this really awesome lecture that 
they released right around the time that like the protests were kicking off and I have seriously listened to it like three times but he talks about how some of the pain you feel from compassion when you start becoming aware of the world's suffering is because it's your, you're seeing yourself in the mm-hmm. world's suffering and not to like make it like I hate that love and light spiritual bypassing where it's like well we're all one we're all just human and blah blah it's like that's where we would like to get to but until we get to that point we have to acknowledge that some humans have been treated as less than human right well we have to extrapolate that if we are all one then everyone's pain is our pain Mm -hmm. and everyone's joy is our joy but you know we can't just shut out the fact that not everybody experiences love and light all the time no, uh, we you know we we have to we can say that that's what we want, like you said, like that is the goal, but it's not only harmful to people who live under really oppressive policies and systems, but it actually is oppressive to people who say things like that because they're not acknowledging their own humanity mm-hmm. and whatever it is that is like. Making inspiring them to just sort of shut down rather than acknowledge their dark side. Yeah, the more we acknowledge our dark side, the less power it has to uh, control us. I think is what Star Wars teaches us. Yeah, (laughs) Star Wars. Yeah, I had a whole my husband's the holy teachings, the holy (laughs) teachings. In the book of, of in the, the book Force. of Jedi, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's funny. My husband's super into Star Wars. It's a slight digression, but on May the Fourth, we were watching all the movies, and I would, um, started nerding out about how the whole light, light and dark side of the Force was like a metaphor for shadow work, and I was going on a whole fucking rant about Carl Jung and shadow work, and he was like, "That's cool. I'd really just like to watch this movie." <laughs> Can we just enjoy Darth Vader for Darth Vader's sake? Yeah, like no, it's a metaphor. But yeah, yeah. But I sometimes think that, you're in the mood for a metaphor, and sometimes you're just in the mood for a stormtrooper. Right. <laughs> well, on that note, I think <laughs> <laughs> I think so too. On that note, I'm really glad that uh, we both had a chance to digest a lot of. Crystal's amazing insights and work. And Voices of the Sacred is an organization that I, I hope everyone checks out and gets involved with in some way, either through donating or being somehow connected, helping them launch their podcast or uh, buy land or launch mm. a website. Uh, there are so many ways to be of help and to help get the voices of Native youth out there and Native veterans out there to to share experiences and this history. So it doesn't need to be shocking and dismaying and instant guilt-inducing to, mm-hmm. uh, to people forever. We can have this conversation as a reality that we all can live in and work from without uh, silencing each other and co-opting each other, all that shit that we do. Yes, there. that was one other thing I forgot to mention I loved was what Crystal said about the idea of that, you know, it is work to imagine the world we want to create. And that's certainly something mm-hmm. I, I hope with the more conversations we have on this pod, just letting people know that we do have this power to write a better story. <laughs> like, we can we do really this. Do. And mm-hmm. we've been told we can't, but that's a goddamn lie. We absolutely have this power. So I really appreciate Crystal for giving me those reminders 
of, you know, what I can do to support not only her work, but the general humanity. Please don't fuck yourself forever project. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's an excellent title. Humanity, please don't fuck yourself forever project. Yeah. It can, I I feel like that's got, that's, that's got some legs. Yeah. (laughs) Humanity, don't fuck this up. Love Love the earth. Okay. Great. Well, uh, let's, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure we're going to have more of Crystal on. And I hope anybody who's listening and has suggestions for uh, people we might want to talk to and uh, conversations we might want to have, uh, they please feel free to leave us a note yes. or a comment or a glowing review, you know, that has like, you know, a little ask in there amid all of the flattery. You know, we're totally fine with that. <laughs> Bribes. Yeah, bribes. bribes. To talk to anyone you want. <laughs> Please. Flattery will get you possibly not everywhere, but many places. <laughs> Artful flattery. Artful Be subtle, flattery. damn it. <laughs> All right. All right, you got to drive to Missoula. Uh, so. Yes, I have to drive to Missoula. Yeah. Uh, thank you to everyone who's listening for listening. And I am really enjoying doing this. Thanks, Sarah, yes. for peer pressuring me. Yes, thank you for keeping me on task. So. <laughs> Woo. 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 All right. This episode's guest was Crystal Tubles, music by Natani Means. Join us next time when we'll be talking with Ashley Woodard Henderson, co director of the Highlander Center. Thanks for listening. to relate to the struggle that we face every day so while you spread the hate we elevate and pray for better days can you see the shit we've been through losing all my kin to everything we send to sharpen up the ginsu and we just continue back on the war path repping no more half stepping uncle sam threatened ever since i stepped in not knowing prayer has been our greatest weapon power and the knowledge in the fist that i'm clenching fighting for the earth we've been set tripping the blood goes back to creation